Welcome to the Rope Walker Podcast, the monthly podcast from the Corsicana Artist and Writer Residency, featuring intimate conversations with our residents. My name is Alicia Nicole Harris. I'm a poet and the residency's director of public programs. I'm also this week's host. Today, we're in conversation with writer-in-residence for February 2021, journalist and ceramicist Marion Bull. Humorous and insightful, rigorous and celebratory, Marion's writing is driven by her insatiable curiosity and her commitment to personal and collective delight. For the past eight years, Marion has been a food writer and editor for publications like The New York Times, Vogue, and GQ. You can learn more about Marion Bull online at CorsicanaResidency.org and on her website, MarionBull.com. In this episode of Rope Walker, Marion talks with us about joie de vivre, her nonlinear journey to journalism, the pneumatic qualities of great food writing, and the challenges of writing memoir. But first, we begin with a discussion of what brought her to Corsicana, her nonfiction memoir project about her childhood growing up in a live magic company. I am working on a nonfiction writing project that will maybe someday become a book that is about the uh, stage magic troupe that I grew up in and performing with. Um, in 1976 in Beverly, Massachusetts, my parents and a group of about 60 to 70 people uh, purchased and under the direction of this man named Cesario Pelaez, who was a psychology professor from Cuba, who was teaching in Salem, Massachusetts, this group of people purchased a vaudeville theater in Beverly, Massachusetts that had been built in 1920 and that had basically like fallen into disrepair. Um, and essentially renovated it by hand or like, you know, spiffed it up mm -hmm. um, and started showing movies there and then uh, started putting on a magic show and they put on a magic show from uh, almost every Sunday from uh, February I think 20th 1977 to 2012 when Cesario died or actually a little bit after Cesario died um, I think they finished out the season he died in March late mm. March 2012 um, and yeah, so I grew up in the Stage Magic Company. My parents, my older sibling, and I performed in the show every Sunday. We got like a couple weeks off in August. Um, but that was like the, uh, the, big, the big interesting thing about my childhood. And it was this uh, sort of strange, complicated, uh, phenomenon, this group of people, and this uh, very smart, uh, slightly autocratic, incredibly difficult man who led them. And um, yeah, I'm just sort of trying to chip away at understand. Like, basically, the crux is like, this is something I've been trying and failing to explain my entire life. And like, what is the most accurate? the most honest and most sort of like cohesive way I can try to understand it and to like explain it to people in a way that is is hopefully interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, on the face of it, it seems like every kid's sort of dream to sort of grow up right. in a magic troupe. So what were, as a, as a younger person, what were right. some of your favorite 
moments of growing up in this magic troupe and then as an adult looking back sort of like what are the things that sort of stick with you or those things that you feel like you're really trying to unpack you know through Mm. this through this story well as a bratty little kid who would have rather been like going to sleep over the soccer practice i think i had a great level of resentment towards Mm. (laughs) being in the magic show yeah so i think you know now i see it as like a great gift to have grown up in an environment where I was just like allowed to play and allowed to like I think the sort of the phrase like expressing yourself is like maybe meaningless but like I just got to like go up on stage and like play around on stage and but it seems like they trusted you I mean that's the oh, thing yeah. that's the thing that I think is really fascinating that like as as a as a young performer, they expected you to sort of get on stage and have a a a, a great time being there. Well, Cesario had very strong ideas about children. He believed first of all that children should be spoiled. He believed second of all that you know if there are kids in the show, and I don't know if there are children who used to be in the show who would disagree with this, but definitely the kids like my sibling and I and this kid named Seth who was like the main kid before us. Mm-hmm. Um, he essentially, you know, he didn't want there to be a lot of obligation once we got on stage. I mean, the question of whether or not the show is an obligation is another question, but, you know, he really wanted us to be able to play and like have fun. And if we, if we wanted to be in a different number, we could do that. You know, like it was really, we were given a tremendous amount of, I would say autonomy and power to the extent, to an extent that became, to the extent that I think is sort of ridiculous, but, um, but yeah, it was awesome. And just having a space like that, that felt like, hours um even now going back to the theater uh it was like a very special space for me in my childhood and like having that like secondary environment i don't know i mean like uh, i have so many different feelings about this that sometimes i'm like am i being too critical am i being like too rosy too rosy about it um but yeah, I mean, it was definitely like a special, it was definitely a special thing. It definitely like, I'm definitely grateful that I grew up in an environment where like self-expression was encouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, like it wasn't like a very uh, straight-laced, I mean, maybe it was straight-laced in certain ways, but but do you yeah. think that that had an impact on you sort of becoming a writer later on in life in the sense that like, you know, you say in your bio that you've had many different lives as like a consultant, a social right. media, like, and how did you come upon writing? And is do you feel like it was some form of like that self-expression yeah. that you valued as a child sort of continuing on or finding mm-hmm. its Finding its form, I guess. Yeah, and I don't even know if I value... I, I don't even know if I would say I valued it as a child. It was just something that I was allowed as a mm. child. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think... Like, when I was a kid, 
I don't know if I was ever like, I want to be a writer, I want to be an artist. Like, it was just kind of like I got to do whatever I want, for better or worse. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely went through a phase in my life where I was really trying to be, uh, trying to be a little more normal. Uh, you know, I went to boarding school, I went to, I wanted to study business in college, I joined a sorority, I got a job in consulting. Um, I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, which, no offense, but was not the place for me. Um, and then sort of like took a half year to figure my shit out. Am I allowed to cuss on yeah. that? Okay. Um, yeah, and then took basically six months to travel and figure out what I was doing and had kind of, you know, this was 2011, so everyone had a blog at, the, at that time. I mean, it was sort of the tail end of blogging culture, but I wasn't very tapped into that. So, you know, it was 2011, I was like reading a lot of blogs and then I started a personal blog, which you can't read, don't try to look it up. Um, it's, it's password protected. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, because I was, I was getting really into food and cooking uh, and I was reading a lot of food blogs and like exercise blogs. Um, you know, like women who would like write about what they were putting on their oatmeal. And for some reason I decided I wanted to start one and that's sort of when I was like, oh, maybe I like, maybe I like writing and I have a facility for it. Um, I feel like food writing is incredible because of the level of detail mm. that you have to achieve mm -hmm. in order to get somebody to feel the yeah. experience of eating a dish that's either yeah. good and really pleasing or terrible right. but you have to be able to communicate that in words really potently right. and I think yeah I'm like maybe I should just try writing about food for a long time to just get my game up well, I, I took a, I recently did a, a workshop with a woman named Molly Weisenberg, who's a wonderful writer and a lovely person um, who lives in Seattle. And she was like an early, early food blogger. I think she started her blog in 2004. It's called mm -hmm. Orangette. I mean, it's, she's not really writing on it anymore. But um, she was teaching this workshop on uh, writing scene from memory. Mm -hmm. And she was talking a lot about... Uh, concrete detail and she was like the great thing you know she was like I've I've been a food writer for a long time but for me it wasn't necessarily about writing about food it was about like the way that food like allows us to talk about things and yeah. the, the the kind of detail with which you in order to write well about food you have to write about it and mm -hmm. also the way that those details can like evoke memory or emotion or even like um I don't know, they can be very evocative. Um, yeah, you described Chinese black rice as beads of onyx. <laughs> well, that's maybe in, a little over the top. In, in one of your uh, pieces, and I was like, oh, well, now I feel like I'm, I'm getting so much of an experience even just by that. I'm like, okay, I've got color, I've got texture, I've got weight to yeah. it, and yeah. Food writing is hard because it's like you've really only got so many words. And then you realize you use the same ones over and over and you're like, I'm so dumb. Um, but yeah, no, I, it, is, it is a great way to, um, 
yeah, to force specificity on yourself as mm -hmm. a writer. Mm -hmm. um, and also, it's just like a deeply personal thing for some, yeah. for almost everyone, I would say. Uh, I was reading yeah. this article about memory and um, displacement and diaspora, mm. and they were saying that um, when a culture or a group of people immigrate, one of the last things to go in terms of the cultural signifiers that people carry is food. That language will go first, mm. clothing will go first, like clothing will go, religion will go, but the last, the last remnant are the dishes that people mm. ate and this, like, this how food evokes, you know, it, it plays with your olfaction and olfaction is tied to memory and so these, these things that we ate are, are really important to us and they evoke home in ways that nothing else can. Right, and it's so tied to the idea of like safety and comfort. I was just reading um, a piece that uh, my friend Dana wrote that came out today that was about, like essentially it was like about like being a kitchen person. Um, and it was about like her relationship with cooking and you know, loving to be in the kitchen um, and also sort of the idea of like, oh, okay, well, what does it mean if you're kind of like a feminist, but you like really love cooking? Um, <laughs> but but talk, I mean, that was only a small part of it. Um, and she was speaking about it much more, much more, much more interesting and nuanced way than I just said. But she was talking about the story that she had read about a refugee camp for a refugee camp in Germany, and there were refugees from, I, I forget what country, um, in the Middle East, and maybe, I think Syrian refugees, but I could be mm -hmm. wrong. Um, and somebody had written the story about it, how there was, the refugees had to eat this, like, bland German food. And not even to be like, oh, German yeah. food is bad, but it was like, you know, it was almost like the meals that, like, you get on an airplane or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, or like, uh, PREs or what do they call the army meals? MREs. Um, MREs, yeah. Um, but the, and there was a kitchen. The women, like the women that this person, this writer was talking to, saw that there was a kitchen in the um, in the refugee camp, and they were like, "Can we cook? Like, we'll cook for everyone. Like, can we cook mm. in the kitchen?" Mm -hmm. And the people running the camp were like, "It's a health and safety violation. Like, we're so sorry, you can't." And it was just sort of like, if you can't do that, then what's like, what's the point of like? being saved or being free if like those are the things that yeah. you can't take with you. Yeah. So speaking of place in Corsicana, uh -huh. what have been some of your favorite meals that you have had or things that you've eaten? Maybe it wasn't a complete meal. Okay, so I haven't eaten outside of the building much. I did go to the Tortilleria the other day and I got some really good tacos. The Al Pastor taco was really good. I'm, I'm planning my drive out of town on Tuesday so that I can stop there right at 10 a.m. when they open for breakfast. We've been cooking a lot. What have I cooked that's good? Well, I made, I made the viral TikTok feta pasta for, um, for Cecil and Tom, which we all enjoyed. And I've just been cooking a lot. It's so nice to like cook in that kitchen too because my kitchen at home doesn't have any counters. So this kitchen has a lot of counters and a lot of space. Um, mm -hmm. And it's so nice to 
like even when I'm here and I'm working a lot, you know, if I wake up at six and I'm working for, I'm working until five or whatever, I've really got to turn my brain off. Yeah. And cooking is, I mean, cooking isn't necessarily a way to turn my brain off, but it's like a soothing thing for my brain to do. Um, Absolutely. And that has been really nice to like have that kitchen and be able to, um, be able to just like, even though I am, you know, in this environment that is completely renewed, removed and completely different from where I'm used to living, I can still have that like daily routine or whatever. Um, And also Nancy brought us really good tortilla soup and she sent me her recipe, which is mostly like cream of chicken soup and rotel and some fajita seasoning and then chicken. And she taught me something really interesting. She taught me this via Cecil. She told Cecil this. But she said, I like to, on top of my tortilla soup, I like to take chips, melt cheese on top of the chips, and then put that on top of the soup. So it's almost like you have nachos on top of the soup. And so if you like make this sort of... Like a French onion kind of situation Yeah, and it's reverse. like, yeah. exactly. And it's like you make this sort of like canopy, right, of like nachos, and then you can add whatever other... I mean, you could do whatever you want, but then you add whatever other like garnishy thingies mm-hmm. you want. And then like as they sink down into the soup, like some of the chips become like soft and mushy, but some of them stay crispy. And it's just an amazing textural experience. I'm really bringing that one home with me. Corsicana Artist and Writer Residency is a community funded nonprofit organization supporting the production of art and literature in historic sites in Corsicana, Texas. Find out who's currently in studio on our website, CorsicanaResidency.org. We just finished talking to our February resident, writer and ceramicist, Marion Bull, about her work as a food journalist. Stick around as we hear more about her ceramics practice and the interesting discoveries she's making combining narrative journalism and memoir in her latest project. Okay, so we've talked about food <laughs> and cooking uh-huh. and writing. A little, yeah. And a little bit about the magic troop. So where does the ceramics come in? Uh, started as a way for me to turn my brain off. Uh, five years ago, my therapist was like, you need something in your life that is not related to your job. Because like cooking didn't count anymore. Mm. Uh, your hobbies reading had all become, doesn't, become... Reading, bi- reading sort of counts, but not really... Most of my friends work in media. So I was like, okay, I'll take a ceramics class. I'd always wanted to take a ceramics class. I had my parents buy me a class for Christmas that year. I'm sorry. Um, And I became sort of obsessed with it. Well, at first I wasn't super into it, but then... Like, I I was sort of a lazy learner at first, which is a tendency I can have. And then... All of a sudden, I just sort of became obsessed with it and wanted to spend all of my time at the ceramic studio. And I was freelance at the time, so I, I sort of could. I mean, not spend all of my time there, but I did have a relatively flexible schedule. Uh, and I just got really into ceramics and, like, making stuff. And uh, I was... I really enjoyed having something to do and somewhere to go where I could just, like, not be looking at a computer, not really be looking at my phone. Like, your hands are covered in clay... Um, and just sort of zone out. Yeah, I started getting really into like making mugs. And then I spent that winter in LA, um, 
the winter of 2016, 2017, and I was taking classes at this incredible studio in LA called Echo Ceramics. It has a gas kiln and they have all these incredible clay bodies, all these beautiful glazes, and I was just like obsessed with it. Um, and and I started like, it was just sort of one of those things, like I started posting stuff on Instagram and then people would be like, oh, will you make me a mug? And so then like a year later, I started like more formally selling stuff and it became, I mean, I have a horrible habit of monetizing my hobbies. Like I really wanted to, I really want to find a hobby that I'm just like bad at and I'm not going to get better at and I just do it for the sake of doing it. I read some story about a, why is that important to you? Why do you why do you feel like you need that? Well, cuz I've never really had that experience before and I think it would be useful. I remember some story I saw a couple of months ago, maybe it was Ray Bradbury or somebody was like, "Oh yeah, I have all this stuff that I do. I'm not good at it. I just do it because it's fun." It's like, I think, I think there is value in doing something not for the sake of getting good at it, but doing it for the pleasure of doing it. And I also think there is pleasure in, like, in, like, being an amateur at things. Oh, yeah. Like, I got a little, um, a little, uh, watercolor set recently, and I, I've only used it once, but it was really fun. <laughs> Um, no, I, I don't think that I need to be bad at something in order to enjoy it. I just would like to have something that is purely a hobby and not something that I can then monetize into like a third career mm. that I have at the same time as my two other careers. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I love ceramics. It's so fun. It's so fun to, it's like, it's corny to say, but like it's fun to make stuff with your hands and it's like a different way for my brain to think creatively. Um, yeah. Which what is makes, a great gift. Kyle and I had a conversation about what makes good ceramics. Mm. So wh- what? I don't know. Or what are you? Dr- <laughs> I'm gonna ask two formal questions. What do you think makes a good ceramic? Or what are you looking for when you're looking at ceramics? Mm. And then on the flip side of that, what makes a good sentence? I'm I'm not. That's a that's a question I've been thinking about a lot, and I don't have an answer to yet. Um, because when I'm writing, I mean, I think reading, it's like, it if like, if a sentence hits you, it hits you, right? But from a writing perspective, like, I think there is a certain rhythm that I feel in a good sentence that I write, or like a sentence that I write that mm-hmm. I am pleased with, um but I don't know how to articulate it. And it's also something that I worry I do too much and it becomes like a, I, sometimes I worry that all my sentences sound the same. Mm, mm. Um, but I think that's just a, I think that's probably something that everyone worries about. I, I, uh, I'm very embarrassed to say that I still don't have an answer to your sentence question. Um, ceramics wise, I mean, I love something that just like delights me. Um, like. Well, there's a couple. I mean, it's like, are we talking about functional ceramics? Or are we talking about, like, art ceramics? Like, I have a lot of specific opinions on functional ceramics um, as far as, like, what I want mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me what delights you. I mean, I think one of the things that you said that I think is, it, when I'm 
listening to you talk, the thing that I'm threading together is this perhaps a, a deep seeking for um, like for joy, for yeah. joy and pleasure, not in a, like a hedonistic sense yeah. necessarily, but for that kind of celebratory. Um, yeah, because otherwise, what's the point? I know that there are other points, but it's like, if something's not going to make you happy, why put it in your house? Yes, I would say something that does thread through my, the way that I make ceramics, the way that I make sentences, and the way that I enjoy both other people's ceramics and sentences is that I am not a minimalist. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I want something to feel alive. Mm -hmm. um, whether that's like a stupid mug that like says something on it or like uh, an enormous like painted vase that somebody else made or you know I'm reading have you read Geek Love by Catherine Dunn? It's a book about a Kearney family. Um, Research? Uh, it's like one of my favorite books. I'm rereading it as sort of like existential research, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, like people who can make something feel alive are much more interesting to me than people who are like obsessed with form to the extent that like it's a dower. Mm. And I know that that's like a judgment and I know that those people are brilliant and talented and like that's great, but... Um, like, I've dated enough men who are really into Raymond Chandler to know that, like, that's simply not my vibe. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm looking for things that, like, feel alive and that, like, make me happy to be alive because, like, why else? Like, otherwise, what's the point? And I'm sure that, I'm sure you could probably draw some uh, parallels between that and growing up in a magic company uh, where every single cubic inch of the stage was covered in something, mm -hmm. uh, whether mm -hmm. it was a costume or a hat or a backdrop or a set piece or a box that was painted inside in a place that only the person hiding inside of it could be painted, mm. um, or a curtain or whatever. And also the fact that, and also the people who raised me, but um, I mean, my mom is the opposite of a minimalist. But um, yeah, I'm sure you could draw some some parallels there. But yeah, I want something that feels like it's like teeming with life. Mm. So this is your first time working on a novel, a book, a book, a book, a book. Um, we might have to call it a novel at some point, but right now it's a nonfiction book. Okay, nonfiction book. Um, how is that different from? sort of like the journalism that you've been used to writing. Mm -hmm. How What is the style or what is the genre sort of mm. challenging uh, you in? Um, well, there are a great array of challenges that this project is presenting me with. One of them is scope. Uh, both in trying to understand what I want the scope of my book to be, mm -hmm. which I know is not an answer that I'm going to have for a little while, and also the scope of the material that is available for me to try to understand, which is enormous. 
um, and can be uh, overwhelming. I mean, I'm sure everyone who writes a book feels that way. I know it doesn't make me special. Um, but yeah, scope is one great difference. Um, but I also like, ever since I started even thinking about this, I've always been like, this is something I'm gonna be working on for like at least five years. Like this is not something that's gonna happen quickly. It's mm -hmm. not something I want to happen quickly. It's mm -hmm. like, these are things that I don't want to just like have one thought about and put it down. Um, I mean, not that that's how it works, but like this is stuff I really need to think through. And I also want to allow the space and time for me to change my mind about things or like change my opinions on things or, you know, like I really need, I, this is going to require a lot of time. Um, so that's different. Um, as far as like tone and style and genre, I mean, what I've been writing while I've been here is is like all the sort of memoiristic stuff. I mean, I've I've mostly been doing like free writing. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but I came here with essentially like a menu of things that I knew I wanted to write, like scenes I wanted to get down. Um, some sort of spaces that I wanted to write about, uh, topics in general, um, like the way Cesario treat, like dealt with kids, like the sewing room, stuff like that. Um, and so I was really just trying to make my way through it. Um, and then also just like see what else appeared in my brain. Because <laughs> um, once I got through that, I was like, oh no, what do I write? Uh, which uh, is fine. Um, but so a lot of it is, yeah, the, so, sorry. Um, so the writing that I've been doing has been very kind of like, just like trying to get all the goo inside my brain and inside my soul out onto the page. Mm -hmm. Um and see what sticks. Um, and try to understand the limits and the extent of my memories. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, and that's not, that is not the writing that, that that's a style of writing that comes generally easy to me. Um, I mean, I haven't gotten to editing it, which is a whole other thing, but it is, and it's a style of writing I've done a good bit of, as mm -hmm. far as like personal essays or like writing about cooking, which I think is a very personal type of writing. Um, and the one thing that I am nervous about and eager to find a solution to is that, I think we maybe were talking about this the other day, because um, there's gonna be a lot of, so the book as I'm imagining it now is sort of gonna be combining like memoir, oral history, and like research, <laughs> journalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I don't think journalism is, the, but you know, like reported yeah. analysis, if mm -hmm. you want to call it that. Um, and because, you know, I want to understand the magic company within all its contexts, right? Within the context of magic history, within the context of like the 70s and, uh, you know, people across the country who are creating these alternative communities. I mean, I think a lot of people at the, um, in the magic company wouldn't call it that, but we can call it that 
in this room if we want to, um, within the context of um, the Gurdjieff work, which was like a found, more or less a foundational idea of the magic company. Um, and understanding it within that context, those contexts means understanding those contexts and then explaining, right, explaining your way through it via the magic show. And so, sorry, I'm sort of rambling. Um, I think one great challenge I will have is sort of finding a way to write sections that are pretty research heavy or fact heavy mm -hmm. in a way that makes them feel of a piece with the more memoiristic stuff. Um, because there definitely is like a mode that my writing brain goes into if I'm writing like a reported feature on like the state of the restaurant industry and like labor issues right mm -hmm. now. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, okay, like it's, 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 it's newspaper writing. Like it's like, you know, which I think is valuable and that can be done extremely well. I'm not saying that that's bad writing or not, or can't be, you know, artistic writing even. Um, and there are people who do it very elegantly. Uh, but I think that it's easy for my brain to just switch into that when I'm trying to sort of process facts in that way or process mm -hmm. like recently learned information in that way and also get in like quotes and whatever. So finding a way where the kind of form and format of the book and the style of the writing can uh, create space for all of that analysis and context while still feeling like there's a central vibe running through it, maybe we could say. Um, that feels like one of the bigger challenges I'm going to have from like a pure writing perspective. Yeah, yeah. But I'm also eager to figure it out because it is something that I really admire in other people. Like when somebody does that well, I think it's very admirable and mm -hmm. it is a skill I would like to develop and like I would like to develop my own not my own way of doing it, like, I'm going to brand the Marion Bull style of, you know, like, I'm not inventing any sort of wheel, but I do want to kind of understand what that looks like in my voice or whatever. Mm -hmm. Makes total sense. Yeah. And, like, I'm fine with there being sort of slight stylistic shifts, right, in a book, like, if you're, and I think that that can be a useful tool, but... Yeah, you don't want to be. You don't want to feel like you're reading a memoir, and then feel like you're reading a newspaper, and then feel like you're reading something else. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You want it to be sort of seamless. Yeah, ideally. Yeah, that's the dream, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, I only have two more questions for you. Okay. Um, you were talking about you know newspaper writing, journalism, research, and you know we often think about the reporter's obligation to their sources mm -hmm. um, when we're doing ethical journalism. But in this mm -hmm. case, this is also your own childhood. You yourself mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. a source. So what is your obligation to yourself as <laughs> you approach this work? Wow, that's not how I thought you were gonna end that sentence. I was like, I've got an answer for this. And then you said it was about me? Um, That's a good question. You know, I'm not sure. 
Um, I think being, I mean, I want to be as honest as I can within the realm of what I feel like is my story to tell. Um, and I think, you know, one thing I've really been working on while I'm here is just like trying to understand what is inside my memory and trying to get it, get as much of it down, get as much of what I think is relevant down. Um, but yeah, I also do want to like fact check myself. Um, not in a, not in an overly exacting way, um, but my memory is not the best. And there are things I remember, and then I will look at an email I sent from that time, and I'll be like, oh, I was being a huge bitch for no reason. And I don't remember this. And like, why was I acting this way towards this person? And like, what was going on here? Um, and so much of memory is just stories that we've like built up over time and told ourselves over and over. And they've sort of built up this like, it's almost like layers of sediment, right? And so like the story isn't the thing underneath the sediment, the story is the top layer of the sediment. Yeah. I don't know if that metaphor makes sense, but it's what's in my head. Um, and I think trying to understand that is a central part of this work. I don't think that my objective is to necessarily try to like excavate every most accurate truth but to present the truth that I have with an understanding of its fallacy basically mm. um, fallacy is not the right word yeah it's like it's weaknesses um, because there are a thousand versions of the story that I am trying to tell. I have about 50 of them. Um, and everyone, you know, everyone experienced that place differently. Everyone has a different relationship to its legacy. Everyone's holding on to something different. Some, everyone's protective of something different. Um, and I really am interested in sort of like the limitations of narrative from that perspective, right? Like I can, I can spend 10 years trying to tell the most, tell the story that's the most accurate while still being, you know, respectful to everyone I'm talking to and even not talking to, but like, there's still going to be flaws in the concept of truth there. And I am interested in sort of like living inside of that problem and seeing what happens. Um, and I think Yeah. With using myself as a source. Yeah, I don't know. And I think a lot of it comes from having conversations with other people. I mean, I know that that's not necessarily the same thing, but so, you know, we're able to remember so much more when we talk to other people who were there. Like I'm writing about this, um, this number in one of the shows, and I remembered like, 
the general concept. Mm -hmm. I remembered like one of the pieces of uh, one, like the main prop that was used. But I didn't remember basically anything else. I talked to my mom and I talked to my uncle. My uncle was in it. My mom was not. But, you know, she was an adult and I was a kid. And now I remember the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that's like literally how memory works. I didn't, you know, uh, nobody's going to be shocked by that. But yeah, I think if you're going to use yourself as a source, you have to rely on on your community, on the other people who were there with you. Yeah. Um, Knowing that you don't have the whole complete story, but that, yeah. Yeah, and the thing I've always said about this is like, my part of the story is not particularly interesting. I mean, it's interesting as far as like cocktail party conversation goes, right? It's like fun to like meet somebody at a bar and be like, oh yeah, I grew up in a magic show and like, isn't that so interesting? But the stuff that's more interesting to me is the stuff that doesn't necessarily have to do with me and the stuff that came before I was born. Um, and maybe it's more interesting to me because I wasn't there, but I do think, you know, I just want to use my perspective as a way into the story mm -hmm. rather than the whole story. Yeah. That was Marion Bull, everyone. You can read her work on food, culture, and issues affecting the restaurant industry in the New York Times and on her website, marionbull.com. Join us next month as we talk with poet and researcher Julie Poole about the May release of her poetry collection, Bright Specimen, and also about her research into magic lantern slides featuring America's national parks. In the meantime, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter featuring updates, meditations, and marginalia from Residency Life in Corsicana. Find out more on our website, CorsicanaResidency.org. <laughs>